Welcome to AUCD Network Narratives, where we share real stories from our members. I'm your host, J.D. Flores, a self-advocacy discipline coordinator at the Strong Center for Developmental Disabilities and the co-chair for the Council on Leadership and Advocacy. Join us as we hear from inspiring leaders within our network working to make a change. Today, Dr. Deborah Vigil joins JD to talk about the way culture impacts service provision and how she prepares speech and language pathologists to practice cultural humility. Deborah is a professor of speech pathology at University of Nevada, Reno, and is a Learn the Signs Act Early ambassador to Nevada. She conducts research in the area of cultural differences in typically developing children to help determine a difference or disorder for diagnostic purposes. She recently has published work related to diversity and graduate admission practices in communication disorders programs. Listen in as JD and Deborah talk about what cultural humility really looks like in practice. So thank you for being with me today. It's been great for uh, for our population in terms of being able to provide those services to these families that really need them. I wasn't born here in Rochester, but I was raised here in the city of Rochester. My brother was born here and my parents don't speak English and my mom is our primary caregiver. And it just was a real big struggle for her to raise both of us not speaking English in a predominantly English speaking place, but also navigating services. Um, you know, also being people of color in the 90s. And I say all of this because I think when, you, when you're when you at diagnosing day, it's, it's really hard when you're getting these big words that are hard to understand and to translate and, and not have someone to, to kind of vibe with as you're understanding this new change and new thing for your family. Well, you know, I think my family, actually, I have ancestors in New Mexico. And in New Mexico... The Spanish came over many, many years ago and just stayed there. They'd been there, you know, for 400 years or something like that. And my parents, actually, it was almost like they were immigrating when they moved to Nevada. They also did not speak English and spoke Spanish. And so I think that's been an advantage for me in a lot of ways because I feel like I understand some of what these families have gone through. So I think that's been really helpful. For sure. I mean, I think, so my mom's not the biggest speech giver. Or like she doesn't really like to be front and center. Like she will, if she has to be, but that's not her, her bread and butter. And she's done some advocacy work with me, um, with us in tandem, we've done things. And I think that that is the, a perk, right? For understanding the culture, understanding what's happening, what's taking place so that when you do, you know, start rolling out treatment plans or deciding what, you know, what is the situation that's taken place and what's the next step to go, it makes it a little easier to know that someone understands, well, all right, when I go home, like this is what I'm dealing with at home. Right. You know, when I first started uh, working as a speech language pathologist and, uh, and doing research when I became an assistant professor and my thesis was around looking at really typically developing children because Many years ago, we didn't know what, how, how to be able to tell the difference between a disorder and a difference because we didn't have any information on what's typical, say, in other cultures, because everything was based around and all the research had been done on white middle class 
children. And so that was where I really started getting my, that was my interest. And just a side note, my brother, who he was in school and they gave him tests in English and he ended up in special education for two years of his life because he didn't do well on those tests. And I mean, that's how I ended up doing what I do because he was in special education and he really was not, that wasn't the problem. It was that he didn't understand the language. And uh, it was really, uh, I think it was a stigma for our family for a long time because he was in special, you know, quote unquote, special education. I mean, he just, he had typical language. And so that was my real interest in working with kids from different cultural backgrounds. And, you know, that's where it really came to be for me. And that's why I really got this interest. You know, it's funny you say that because, so that's one thing where my mom, she didn't have all the verbiage, she didn't have all the language, but when they announced like special education for me in particular, she was like, no, maybe physical therapy. Yeah. But no, like I, I, you know, she was like, that doesn't, that doesn't fit her and that doesn't fit us. And I, and I don't know, you know, what you, what you saw, but it it doesn't work. Um, And that's one thing I would, I want to say that's one of her first big in America, in the States, I would say Mm -hmm. that that was one of her first big fights of like, no, not, not to special education so that I could really get, you know, the services I really needed. What would you say is one of your biggest obstacles as you do this work? Well, you know, one of the things that I do is that I train other people in speech language pathology. So I have students and I have LEND trainees. And uh, I think one of the things that happened to me before, and, and I realized as I've been thinking about this a lot more, is that I have personally gotten very overprotective of the kids that I see. And I only wanted them to see, uh, you know, Latino children. I only wanted them to be getting therapy from a Latina. And I only wanted them to, I wanted them to have therapy in both Spanish and English. And I mean, that was what I thought was the most important thing. And then you know, I realized that at some point that I sort of have to give that up and understand that it's everybody's responsibility, no matter what cultural background that they come from, to provide therapy in a culturally competent way. And so that has been, I think, a real obstacle for me and a real learning, a real learning tool for me to understand that I need to teach these other individuals to do this therapy and to be culturally humble around others. And so that was a big deal for me. And and in my field, I mean, really, honestly, we have, it's about 92% uh, white female. And that's, that's huge. All these kids can't get therapy from somebody who is uh, Latino and speaks Spanish. I mean, that's just realistically, that's just not going to happen. And and it's you know, I, you know, the fallback is is that okay? I, you know, what what really needs to be done is that others really need to take on the responsibility themselves and understand the culture because we all we're all in this together in the end. For sure. I mean, I feel like I have a lot of feels to what you're saying. 
because while I live in a kind of robust city, I would say, we're a mid-sized city here in Rochester, and it's culturally all over the place, the providers are predominantly white. You know, there is, I feel like there is a huge disconnect. So, you know, how do we, like you're saying, like it's everybody's responsibility, but like what is like cultural humility and, and competency and all of that, what does that really look like? Well, that's a really good question, actually. You know, and I mean, it's interesting that you say that because I was just listening to a uh, a podcast about an American Indian who got his PhD in speech language pathology, and he was from New Mexico, and he went back to his to his reservation, and he lives there, and you know, he talked about what his culture was like, and really, one of the things that's the most important thing is, I mean. We may not fit into somebody else's cultural box, but we can ask questions and we can try to learn as much as we can and let them speak their truth and what their issues are around, whether it's them getting therapy or whether it's their children getting therapy. And so I think that's, that's the cultural humility part of it because I may have a different, something completely different that I want to do, but I can't sometimes because you have to have these parents on board to be doing what they need to do. And if you just sort of try to go out and give them information, that's not going to do it. I, I have an example one time where I was doing some, uh, some training at Head Start. And so here I was uh, talking, it was in a predominantly Latino area in the Los Angeles area. And here I was, I got up there and I said, okay, I'm going to teach all these mothers and these, all these, I'm going to teach them something. And here I was just talking and talking and talking and talking. After about 10 minutes, everybody got up and went out and took a break. I was just, I was just so surprised. I just thought, oh my God, what I, you know, this isn't, I'm not talking to students. I'm not talking to these people who are, you know, I really have to understand what their needs are. And so that was a real lesson for me because that's not what they wanted to hear. <laughs> and it makes me think of uh, one of my cousins, her, her daughter, my niece had a speech pathologist, had a speech therapist in, in school. And I think that one thing we learned is for for my niece to really get our Spanish down because English was a little bit easier for her, but like the Spanish words were a little harder for her. The sounds like she couldn't get them. We were all just trying to you know do our part, right, and and be a, you know this young person's grown ups and and you know provide this young person with what you know she needed to really get her point across. Because when she didn't, she was frustrated with us, and we could see it, and it was making things a little bit harder for us. But one of the things that her her speech therapist taught us to do was to put her hand on our lips so that like she could feel the vibration of the words that we were trying to say. And that was such a simple thing that she taught my, my cousin that like really just registered with her and that was something she could teach to so many people in our you know in our immediate circle. So now like this poor baby, everybody who's like, oh we can help like everybody's like, no look, come touch, come figure this out. This is how this is said. This is how this is going. But I can see it being that same way, right? You're in this room full of moms. I'm like, I need something simple, quick and fast. How do I get it done? I got three kids and this one yes. needs extra. How can I do it? 
Yes. Yeah. And that was so, you know, when they came back, you know, I just said, okay, I need to talk about what is it that you need? It ended up being a great session where, I mean, we ended up sitting around in a circle and talking and, you know, they talked about their concerns and they talked about their pains and their hurts and, you know, everything that they had to do. And so when, you know, when we talk about speech therapy, it's not only the child, it's the family. I mean, and I, and that's true for everybody. I mean, they have to understand that, but it is, it's the family. And so listening, because these parents go through things as well. For sure. My mom, definitely. She, uh, she's my favorite holiday, but she definitely, you know, gone, has gone through her fair share of things of, of figuring, figuring all of this out, right? Like this is, you're not just learning like the therapy side of things. You're learning how to navigate the services side of things and also learning how to navigate having five strangers in your living room and on any given day of the week. It's, it's just a lot. That's a lot. Even as I'm teaching, one of the first lectures that I do in this class where I teach language intervention, intervention and diagnostics for children with language disorders one of the first things of my lectures and the first things that I talk about is the family and the parents and building a relationship with the, with the family. That really, you know, like the other day had this family that came in and a lot of it was, I mean, there were some significant problems with this little boy, but a lot of it was letting the mother and the father talk about what they need because this child was getting aggressive at home and he was biting and he was scratching and, you know, they just didn't know what to do. And I mean, I could, I could have talked about, okay, well, here's the, here's what we need to do as far as communication is concerned, but that wasn't the immediate issue at all. So when I think about culture, I do think about listening to the parent. So would you say that's your first step, like your go-to first when you first approach your family? Yes is listen to the parent, definitely. Because if you don't get them to be able to understand what you think is important, they're they're going to continue to interact with them the same. And I need them to understand that they need to change the way that they interact. Recently, I did have a child that, typically developing, he just had, he couldn't say his R right, but he was doing something weird with his mouth. And when we met with the mom, we told her, you know, actually his speech is coming along fine. But when he's saying the R, he kind of poofs his his mouth out and he looks funny. And that mom said, well, it was, that's probably my fault. I've been telling him that he needs to do that in order to say his R right. And then we talked about how long he had been in therapy, this he's 12 years old. He started therapy when he was two. So he's been in therapy for 10 years of his life. And he's a pretty bright kid. And he just, at some point, he said to the student, you know, I really want, I have a goal not to be in speech therapy anymore. And so with the mom, ended up talking to her about because she she was talking a lot about his speech and making corrections. And, you know, and I ended up saying to her that part of their relationship has been her correcting his speech for all of his life. 
you know, and I said, well, what about the fact that he really just needs to be a little boy without having therapy and without somebody correcting him? And it was just a real interesting discussion. And so she backed off. He came to, ther- he missed therapy three for three weeks. They went on vacation. And then when he came back, he was saying he's all right. You know, we dismissed him just uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact, because I think his parents sort of got off his back. The dignity of risk and just the having, being able to fail as someone with a disability is, is huge. And getting parents to approach that ledge is also really hard for them because they're just protective in nature. Yes. So I, I could see how things could change for him drastically. My mom and I, I'm, I'm 32 years old. And we still have conversations about how I'm an adult. And if I'm going to go do something dangerous, it's just going to happen. And she's going to have to be okay. And we're all going to be okay. You know, (laughs) like, you know, bumps and bruises are just a part of life. So for my last question, I want to ask you about your, uh, your work as an Act Early Ambassador. Can you tell me a little bit about that? And then just kind of close us out with what you wish folks knew about what you do. Well, I've done a lot of work in the past where we, at that time, we, I think overall, over the years that I've been doing it, we've printed about 200,000 Milestone Moments booklets, made them available to a lot of agencies across the state. Every Before the pandemic, every year we had an autism summit. It was a a Learn the Signs Act Early Summit. And it really helped to bring a lot of people together, I think. More recently, uh, it's been hard to get in, to get pediatricians to, to understand that they need to do the screening and they need to do, I think it's happening more now. Um, so just recently, I've been working with uh, Mount States Regional Genetics Network, and we've been doing mailings to pediatricians. And now we have two pediatricians that are that are on the, this committee. And so I'm hoping that we can move forward with getting more pediatricians involved and get them to understand the necessity of just even a referral out to somebody. And I mean, I feel fortunate that we have a good relationship in the LEN program with a developmental pediatrician who speaks Spanish. And there is pediatrician now who's on this committee, that he also speaks Spanish. And so I think that makes a big difference. But we've really been able to do a lot. And uh, it's made an impact on a lot of state agencies. They always want to have information about Learn the Signs Act Early. They go to like say for early intervention services, they that's one of the first things that they do. The um, educators there, they provide information about Learn the Signs Act early. So these parents are out there uh, getting this information, uh, which is very different when this whole thing first started. So, so I'm hoping that we can continue to galvanize our state and to understand the necessity of early intervention. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your experiences with us. We really appreciate your time and your energy. And as a Spanish speaker, my Spanish ain't perfect, but if I could be helpful, you know, you let me know, tap me in, and I'm definitely happy to help. <laughs> Thanks, JD. That's really kind of you. I won't promise that my Spanish is great because I'm Puerto Rican <laughs> and you know our Spanish ain't all the way. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thank you for tuning in to AUCD Network Narratives. If this story has inspired you to make a change at your center or program, use the link in our show notes for resources and tools to help you lead on. We'd love to connect with you. So visit the AUCD website and click on the submit your story button at the top. We hope to hear from you soon.